Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Andrew Harvey. I'm author of The Hope and Play Life More Beautifully. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about putting love into action all over the world now. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been a year since the National Park Service announced plans for a lottery to try and get rid of an estimated 700 goats that were roaming the city of refuge at Pu'uhonua Ohonanao. The animals were eventually trapped and close to 500 were given away to hunters or families using them for food. On a recent trip to the Big Island last month, I couldn't help but notice herds of goats traversing the highway on the Kona side uh, from as far up as Waikaloa down to Kealakekua. We checked in with the Department of Land and Natural Resources about getting ahead of the proliferation of wild goats. We talked to uh, Kanalu Sprout, a uh, biologist with the Division of Forestry and Wildlife. So as far as uh, our state agency and the responsibility for, for managing goats, based on our laws and the way animal ownership is derived, we are only responsible for animals that are on state lands. It's an old ag law. It's uh, Hawaii Revised Statute 142-44. Basically says that if there's an unbranded, unmarked, you know, animal, most and it, and it identifies um, cattle, horses, mules, donkeys, sheep, goats, and pigs, so livestock animals, if they're unmarked so that there's nothing that identifies ownership. They belong to the property owner where they are, where they're running freely. So their their ownership can change, right, from property to property. Because of that, like I said, responsibility for, for the state, we're only responsible for those animals when they're on state land. As far as on the west side of the Big Island, we do have a couple of hunting season for goats. So the two main areas we have hunting for goats are in Pu'uanahulu and Pu'uva'ava. The Pu'uanahulu season goes from March through the end of June, weekends and state holidays. And the Pu'uva'ava season, normally we kind of, the, the ruled season begins at the first weekend of August and goes until kind of the middle of September. And just to kind of help reduce the numbers, we do inc- add a couple extra weeks kind of at the beginning and at the end just to, because we recognize there's, there is an issue of, you know, too many goats. In those two areas, our estimates, we estimate there's about 2,000 goats across about 100,000 acres. And we are removing about, with the hunting program, we're removing about 500 goats a year, some between 450 and 550. So I guess the story I'm trying to tell is that where we have responsibility, we have a hunting program, and we're actually pretty much maintaining that in that area, maintaining a balance or a level of population. It's not increasing. Now, everywhere outside of that, where it's private lands, um, some federal lands, where we have no responsibility in our jurisdiction, the population is just shot up. We were involved with that. You mentioned Honono had a, a roundup we were involved and we helped distribute those goats to the public as as they you know public actually wanted wanted the goats and we removed i think 465 goats i think from from the refuge from the city of refuge yeah wow i was just surprised i guess cuz I, w- I went up as far as you know Kauai High, all the way down to napopo recently and yeah they're just like you know running across the highway yeah they're all over the place and especially like i said outside of the places where we have our hunting there's not a lot of programmatic actions taking place to to do anything i do know i have been in contact with some of the hotels and some uh queen of the Okalani trust where they've 
contracted to trappers, and they've done they've done some removal, and it helped a little, but it's not been enough. We don't have the resources to do anything like that. We don't have the legally. We don't even have jurisdiction to manage or or control goats outside of where we of our, of our land. Well, uh, you know, I recall doing stories about how the donkey. Uh, explosion uh, up in you know Kona was a problem during the drought. A lot of the donkeys would come down and drink water from the swimming pools in Waimea. And I know that there were efforts by the a veterinarian there to sterilize and rehome a lot of these donkeys. And they did that. And, you know, but then we're we're seeing the the proliferation of deer on so many islands. And you know, it's an emergency situation where they they have drought conditions. You know, in Molokai. And then I know there are efforts to try and control the pig population as well. They're trying to use some kind of uh, bird Yeah, control. there's a new product that, that um, recently became available in our state to control pigs. Um, in our research, in the, the research that our agency has done on that product specifically is that it's um, not likely to be effective unless you really apply it across a large landscape and consistently. And I mean, it's just, it's not realistically going to do what it is meant to do. And so we're not, our agency is not intending to move forward to use that at all. It's just recently become available, I guess. And so that was the, I guess, the news uh, about it, right? It's like now in Hawaii, it's legal to use that product. But there's no current program or plan to broadcast that? Not from our agency. Okay. And so then the, the situation with the goats, you just do what you can on state lands and you hope that the private owners are um, going to be responsible as well with trapping. And, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, when you give these goats away, are people using them for their backyards or for food? So actually, I talked to I talked to every one of them that came and picked up goats. And I think we had 15 different individuals come and grab them. And pretty much all of them was going to keep a small section, a small portion of the of what we distributed to them for their backyards but the rest of them most of them were selling it to meat market and so there's the the trappers that i know over here i know maybe five or six trappers and that when they can they'll go trap and they ship the goats to Oahu for the market over there i think the market over there prefers live goats so they ship them there live and they're sold over there for for, for meat for harvest so uh what can you tell us about the origins like where did they come from initially how long have we had wild goats do you know i know captain vancouver dropped them off and i don't remember the year 1770 okay. something or 90 something is you know they've been they've been here for a couple hundred years okay and then uh i read that the county was trying to uh, uh run some pilot programs to use them to keep the grass down in some areas do you, have you been in contact with anybody over there about that yeah i, I do know so we actually our agency did contract as a as a pilot study to use the goats to keep the grass down we did it at, at Pu'uva'va in a small section but it can be effective it's uh it's a little pricey but they definitely can keep the grass down ours was at Pu'uva'va and where's Pu'uva'va? North Kona between Kona and Waikoloa so it was an area that is a um, kind of steep cliffy area that had a lot of grass fields on it and so we right. did it to reduce grass and reduce fuel loads it was effective but it did it was a little pricey are the farmers complaining are they becoming a nuisance most of the places that I'm getting phone calls from as far as goats are going to be near hotels and residential areas. I haven't had a lot of calls from farmers yet. Farmers mostly call me about pigs and nanny goose. <laughs> <laughs> and that was biologist Conalu Sprout, who is with the Department of Land and Natural Resources, Forestry and Wildlife Division. He was talking about the challenges of managing wild goats on state land on the Big Island. You know, we continue to hear from candidates running for lieutenant governor. There is a huge number of undecided voters, according to the latest poll by the Star Advertiser. Today we hear from Democrat Ikaika Anderson, the former Honolulu City Council chair, stepped down uh, from office before his term ended to take a job with the Construction Trades Union. We asked about how voters might have perceived that move and if that might affect uh, what they thought of his commitment. Well, I was absolutely upfront with voters. Uh, I didn't say that I went home to spend more time with my grandparents. What I did say is I needed to head, I needed to return home to attend to my family, which included uh, taking care of my grandparents because I was one of their primary caregivers. What I did not share at the time, out of respect to my children and my children's mother, was that I was also in the process of 
starting to gain primary physical custody or file for primary physical custody of my children. Now, Catherine, it probably would have done my reputation uh, more of a service had I shared that fact. Uh, but I'm not sorry I didn't at the time. Uh, you know, I had a colleague who filed for divorce approximately two months before I left the city council. And one of our Hawaii media outlets decided to write a story on that. And I just wasn't going to let that happen to my family. I just wasn't out of respect uh, to my then spouse and uh, to my children. So I did share that I went home to take care of my grandparents because I did. I did go home to take care of my grandparents. That's absolutely true. Uh, Pop is 90, Tutu's 87. I do most of their errands with my mom and my stepfather, taking them to doctor appointments, picking up their groceries, picking up their medications. Uh, I was also, at the time, transitioning to being a single dad. Uh, my 12-year-old twins uh, are enrolled in DOE public school. Schools were doing distance learning at that time. I was the only parent in the house. So I needed to be able to work in an environment that was going to allow me to be home until 8, 8.30 in the morning to get my keiki set up on their computers, make sure that all of their connections were set and that they were ready for school. Also to work with my legal counsel on gaining primary physical custody for the kids. So I went to work for Local 630 because it provided me that working environment where I was in the office no more than four hours out of the day. And I was able to work from home for the remainder of the workday. And that wasn't sometimes, that was every day. I worked from home for at least half of the workday every single day. And at the same time, as I, I think folks understand, when families go through those types of ordeals, they cost thousands of dollars, they cost a lot of time. I also needed to ensure that I had income to be able to take care of my children as well as to be able to finance my primary physical custody case which I was able to do. As far as in your political ambitions to run for, you know, higher office, I mean, you know, were you thinking about that then as you were a council chair about Absolutely what you could not. do? Um, in fact, if you go back and look at my Friends of Ikaika Anderson campaign account, Catherine, over the, over the past year uh, from 2020 to 2021, I gave away in excess of $100,000. My campaign account whittled down from $550,000 to about $435,000 of going up until early 2021. So if I were contemplating running for lieutenant governor or any office in 2022, prior to my departure from the Honolulu City Council, there's no way I would have started giving away money to nonprofit organizations and other candidates that my team believed in who were running for office. I only decided to run for lieutenant governor around July, August of 2021. And what made you decide to throw your hat in the ring? Leadership. I saw a severe disconnect in the executive branch of government, and I looked at the potential candidates who could run, and I felt that our team could do a far better job with the experiences that we've had. I've served as an elected executive, have had to make tough calls, led the Honolulu City Council through the initial phase of COVID, kept people safe. When we had COVID outbreak in the city clerk's office, I worked with Dr. Scott Miskovich, and within three hours of me finding out about the COVID outbreak, uh, we had Dr. Miskovich's team on the ground in Honolulu Hale conducting voluntary testing. We were one of the first, if not the first, branches of government to close. Got some criticism from that, but made the decision with the information that we had at the time. So as Honolulu City Council Chair, I have... Uh, a reputation as one who makes rapid decisions and but sound decisions with the information that I have at my disposal. No one else running for lieutenant governor has had those types of decisions affecting a million people stop on their desk on an everyday basis. My team had those experiences and they'll serve us well as lieutenant governor and complementing the next governor should we be fortunate enough to go to the state capitol executive chambers. And, you know, you're well known to uh, folks in your uh, Windward Oahu district. And, uh, you know, I know running for a statewide office is, is a little different. I have seen you out there uh, on the campaign trail. You were at the Filipino Fiesta at the Philcom Center. What's it been like for you, you know, having to, uh, to broaden your reach? Our team has been exceptionally fortunate, Catherine, in the fact that I represented the Honolulu City Council on the Hawaii State Association of Counties, HSAC. 
the Hawaii State Association of Counties is made up of one member from all four of the county councils. And through my representation on the HSAC Executive Committee, uh, we form not just relationships, but genuine friendships with county elected officials across the state. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, today I'm headed to Kauai to meet up with former council member Dickie Chang and former uh, council chair Mel Raposo. Uh, these gentlemen have been solid friends over the years. I've been a guest uh, in both of their homes. Uh, but these types of relationships have really helped us as we moved across the state. Uh, same thing on Hawaii Island. You know, Council Member Tim Richards, current state senator and, and former council member uh, Drew Kanuha have been friends, uh, as well as uh, has former state senator Malama Solomon. Uh, on Maui County, same thing with uh, former state senator Joe Tanaka and former council chair uh, Ricky Hokama. So we form genuine friendships with people. And in the last civil beat poll that came out, Although I'm running a solid uh, second behind the, the front runner, and that was three weeks ago, my campaign is leading on all neighbor islands, Kauai by more than double digits, Hawaii Island and Maui County by single digits. But I think that's because of the friendships, the genuine friendships that I've built, and more importantly, our team has built across the state on the neighbor islands with our service. People on the neighbor islands have been familiar with us, and we're very fortunate for that. People are well familiar with your uh, family name and your uh, relatives who have been in political office. You know, uh, Whitney Anderson, Andy Anderson, who was uh, key in uh, Mayor Frank Fossey's reign as mayor. You also have a strong support from the construction industry, and you've picked up a number of uh, key endorsements. Well, I picked up four endorsements to date. The first endorsement I picked up was from the State of Hawaii Organization of Police Officers. That was my only endorsement for months. And only within the last maybe three to four weeks have I picked up three more endorsements. But the endorsements I picked up show my record as always supporting our first responders and those who provide public safety to the citizens of Hawaii, our police officers. I have a record of supporting public safety as a Honolulu City Council member. And I also have a record of supporting workforce housing. I did require DR Horton for the first time in that company's history anywhere in America to develop and deliver workforce rental housing to Hawaii families earning no more than 30% to 80% area median income. So I have a solid record of building workforce housing. And together with the current lieutenant governor, my office was also instrumental in implementing the tiny home village concept, also known as the Kauhale concept, which are tiny home villages for our homeless communities that provide hard shelter as well as wraparound service. And I believe that's why we've attracted the support that we have is due to that reputation and record that I have of not only supporting but providing workforce housing as well as homeless shelters for those in our community who need both. There have been attempts to say, why can't we do more modular housing projects? And there's always been some you know, reluctance from the construction industry. If we can put these things up faster using modular units, you know, why not? We'd be more than happy to put up housing faster using modular units. It's not really the types of units that that are prohibiting housing, Catherine. What it really is, is providing lands that are suitable and available for housing. As Lieutenant Governor, our team would have available to us the portfolio of vast state properties. And we would look at the, all of those, inventory them all, to see which properties are most conducive for workforce housing development. One of the highest hurdles to building workforce housing is land acquisition costs. If the state is providing the land, that's no-cost land. That would make a huge, huge stride in providing some workforce housing for our people, particularly in, in terms of rental housing. As a council member, I did propose building housing on city land that's zoned residential near Kalaheo High School in Kailua. Unfortunately, when the city conducted the soil sampling, the property wasn't conducive to additional development as neighboring private homes would have had some issue possibly with their foundations had the city proceeded with construction. So we weren't able to work that out. But I do believe, again, that part of the answer for more housing units between the 30% and 80% area median income level is government providing the land. 
this latest story that we're all reading about on the Big Island, there was a case of the county housing official who's pled guilty to bribery and kickbacks. And, you know, at the end of the day, no affordable housing was built. Uh, Are you worried that something like that could be happening in our county? That happened years ago with the Michael Kamapea scandal. We haven't seen anything since in Honolulu with that. And I'm confident from the time I spent that city hall that we won't see anything like that in Honolulu. Yeah, what was your what reaction? On the Big Island is, it, is an entirely separate case. What was your reaction when you heard about that case? Because My reaction was absolute disgust. Anytime anyone breaks the public trust and abuses their position of public trust, they need to be held accountable. So I was absolutely disgusted by their actions. As I was especially disheartened by the actions of our two former state legislators, uh, particularly the former House Finance Committee vice chair, who is going to be sentenced to federal prison soon who should have lost his entire pension for his actions. And anyone else who follows suit with that, with those types of breach of the public trust should lose their entire pensions. And if elected lieutenant governor, that's something that I will work towards to ensure that any convicted felon who is an employee retirement system pensioner loses all their health benefits and loses all their pensions. The state legislature and state house leadership in particular had a golden opportunity to fix that problem. And they hid behind an attorney general position to shirk their responsibility. That was absolutely disappointing to me. And one of the people running for lieutenant governor, I particularly was disappointed with in pointing at an attorney general position and using that as a crutch as to why the state legislature had to allow a convicted pensioner to hold on to half their pension. It's absolutely unconscionable. So we need to hold these people accountable at all levels of government, Catherine. Definitely. I look forward to working with the next governor to hold convicted felons accountable who are employee retirement system pensioners, yes. Look forward to also having a conversation with the public and with the legislature about term limits for state legislators. All of those things, those are all things that we're looking at. And just after we talked to Anderson this week, fellow Lieutenant Governor candidate Sylvia Luke issued a statement about attack ads that a super PAC began running this week on behalf of Anderson. Uh, and against her. Anderson told HPR the ad in question was not paid for or made in collaboration with his campaign. State law prevents collaboration between candidates and political action committees. Anderson said uh, what uh, is described as a negative attack is no more than being responsible for our documented political statements, voting records, and actions. The political action committee, Be Change Now, has bought more than a half a million dollars in TV and radio advertising. We plan to hear from House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke on Monday as we continue our election coverage. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. On the next Fresh Air, actor Oscar Isaac. He's nominated for an Emmy for his performance alongside Jessica Chastain in HBO's limited series Scenes from a Marriage. He also stars in the Paul Schrader film The Card Counter. He grew up in an evangelical Christian family that was preparing for the apocalypse. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. Lucille Beach Reality Check highlights travel challenges on the Friendly Isle. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. You know, I have to say this story just warmed my heart. It made my day. (laughs) Share with our listeners what it's all about. Sure. So this is a story about how, you know, when you live on Molokai, it can be difficult to do things like see doctors who are specialists or you know, uh, get to work without air travel. Air travel is really essential for a lot of people from time to time. 
And the pandemic period has been hard on airlines. And uh, it's left Molokai with one air carrier. Uh, so that's Mokolele Airlines. And there's an executive of that airline who takes calls from passengers who are in distress at all hours of the day and night um, in an emergency and will make a flight appear if he needs to, if all the other seats are booked and someone needs to get to Honolulu to see a doctor or see a loved one who, you know, maybe is about to pass away and, and wants to be there. So yeah, and, and passengers that, have this direct line. And that actually happened where, where uh, this gentleman, um, uh, uh, Mr. Schumann, Richard Schumann, actually did that. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I spoke with Richard Schumann. He's the, um, you know, he's a, he's an executive there, and he, you know, says that he just is happy to take these calls. He puts his cell phone number and his email address on social media, and in one instance he was telling me about that that's exactly the case. Someone said, you know, I my uh, father is, is at Queens Hospital, and, you know, we got a call. He's not expected to make it through the night. All, all your flights are booked. You know, these are nine passenger planes, so they book up pretty quickly at times. And, uh, you know, Mr. Schumann was able to make a flight appear. He, you know, does this by rerouting other flights. And it does cost gas, and it, you know, can lead to some travel delays for folks who are on the, the plane that's being diverted. But he says, you know, he thinks most people can understand that in an emergency like that, you know, it's it's he sees it as necessary to, to take care of people in those situations. Yeah, and being the only airline that services uh, that island, I mean, I know they have um, constraints. You know, the, the, the doorways aren't aren't really wide, and, and there are issues sometimes with people in wheelchairs. Yeah, you know, Richard Schumann, he acknowledges that, you know, the airline is kind of struggling to to pick up the extra capacity now that they are the only game in town when it comes to air travel. Um, so folks who maybe would have taken another airline um, if they are wheelchair bound, another larger airline that can sort of accommodate them more easily, you know, now there isn't another airline. So Mukulele is, you know, working on trying to figure out how to accommodate everybody. And for folks who uh, think that that name Schumann is familiar, uh, his family helped to start Schumann Carriage here on Oahu, the car company. Yes, he has very deep roots in the transportation industry, that's for sure. Um, so four generations of his family uh, operated Schumann Carriage Co. And then he, uh, you know, worked for the, biz the family business on and off for about 15 years and Eventually, he broke away to launch his own aviation company. He founded Makani Kai Air, which uh, during the pandemic merged with Mokulele. So now he's he's there. Well, I love that he uh, keeps that uh, uh, slogan going, right? Take care of your customers, uh, uh, you know, dating back to Schumann Carriage. But thank you so much, Brittany. It was a great story. <laughs> You're welcome. We've been talking with reporter Brittany Light uh, for today's Reality Check. You can read the full story at civilbeat.org. You know, one of Hawaiian Air's first female pilots retired early this month. Captain Kendall Kiki uh, Culler grew up in Kailua and spent 38 years flying for airlines. She became a pilot in 1977 and started her own charter company in 1990, or excuse me, 1980, before joining Hawaiian in 1984. Uh, Culler says her passion for flying started at a young age. Her father was a pilot for the University of Hawaii's physics department, and her family spent most weekends commuting between islands with him. In her 40-plus years flying planes, she's seen many changes and has plenty of stories. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with her to reflect on her career. I'm curious as to what the industry was like for female pilots when you first started in the 80s. You know, it was really pretty dismal. A lot of people felt maybe not that early on, but at some point, a lot of people felt that 
airlines had to hire a certain amount of minorities, especially women, that any women that got hired, it was just because, you know, airlines had to hire them, but that it really wasn't true. It was, it was extremely hard mm-hmm. to get a job as a woman back then. And I was so fortunate that Hawaiian had such a great opinion of women pilots. They had a few when I got hired and when I interviewed with the chief pilot, one of the first words he said was, we love women pilots. And I was so shocked. I said, you do? And <laughs> he laughed. And, I mean, it was just so great. So Hawaiian uh, has always, I think, been an industry leader, especially in the percentage of women pilots that we've had over the years, has always been better than the industry average. And in your time as a pilot, have you seen things evolve for female pilots over the years? Yes. It, it was really hard in the beginning because it was certainly a, a man's world. And none of the pilots, when I started flying the jets, had ever flown with women before. And, you know, they weren't shy to let us know how they felt about it, some of them. I think certainly as time has gone on, it's gotten better and better. Although I'm still shocked that the percentage of women pilots is still so low. I was talking to a physician the other day who was saying that, at least in uh, his particular field, it's about 50-50 now. And it is in you know so many professional fields. I think he was naming some others. So it's, it's a little bit maybe surprising that Hawaiian has probably one of the highest rates in the industry, which is about 9% of our workforce, and the national industry average is only about 5.5%. So it's so interesting that it's so low. Do you think that's because there hasn't been an increase in interest from women to become pilots? Or do you think it's something else? You know, in the early days, I believed it was because a lot of women were interested in flying, took their lessons, got their ratings, and then no one would hire them. So it was extremely discouraging. And so I feel that women kind of backed off. But that was early on. And then I think part of it is maybe I worry that maybe the word doesn't get out to enough. I used to go around to schools and um, try to, you know, let all the kids know that it was an industry that was open to everyone and that it was, you know, it was a great job. But I worry that not enough young girls get exposed to the fact that they can be pilots. I worry that maybe we don't get out there and and push it enough. But I think it's getting a little bit better now. And there are certainly, there's a big push, I believe, to go around to schools early on and colleges and so forth and encourage women to consider it as a future career. When someone's interested in becoming a pilot, what is the timeline? How long does it take? You have a lot of options as to how you do it. So if you just do it on your own, it's a little bit of a long haul to get all your different licenses, you know, one at a time and flying in between and, of course, having to work a real job in the meantime to pay for everything. Whereas if now a lot of people choose to go, for example, to Embry-Riddle, to one of the flight schools, there are quite a few now where that's all they teach. You might be able to go and really stick with it and in a year bang out most of your ratings of course then you don't have any experience so then there's obviously a period of time where you flight instruct or something of that nature to build up your time but right now it's i guess it happened years ago as well but the airlines themselves are actually now created their own academies where they will basically raise up their own pilots if you will Mm -hmm. So I think the opportunities right now are really amazing. There's a lot of different stereotypes about pilots out there. What do you think is the biggest misconception the public has about an airline pilot? Hmm. I guess maybe overpaid and underworked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Might be a misconception. A lot of people ask pilots how many hours that they work a month and You never even want to say, because people don't understand when you think of a normal person that works a 40-hour work week, 
And if you say something like, oh, I fly maybe 80 hours or 90 hours a month, it sounds like so little. But what they don't realize is that, for example, on a round trip to West Coast destinations, you might get credited for 10 hours and 30 minutes, even though, of course, it took you three days (laughs) to complete that flight. All in all, you know, you get there, you have a layover, you come back. So it's very hard when people ask you what hours you fly. And then I always laugh when passengers say, well, isn't it true that the autopilot does all the work and that all you guys do is monitor it? And I always laugh to myself. And sometimes I'll say something like, yes, actually, there's just a big button that says take off. (laughs) And then one other big button that says land. And then that's all we do. And we laugh. (laughs) (laughs) One thing people are forgetting is that a pilot holds a lot of lives in their hands. That's a big responsibility that they're willing to take on. Well, we always talk about the fact that when everything goes perfectly on a flight, it feels like it's so simple. And then when the unusual things happen, of course, that's when you're really earning your money. And that's when all your experience kicks in and really comes into play. I know when passengers have often brought up they they think maybe there'll be unmanned flights in the future and i just laugh when i think about it because i don't see it happening because there's so much that goes on during a flight especially on an international flight like japan or sydney where there's a lot of weather in between and we have our route that we're scheduled to fly on and we might go 100 miles off route going around weather and so forth, trying to give our passengers the most comfortable ride that we can. And, you know, there's so much that comes into play that you just think, well, I really don't think an airplane flying on autopilot is ever, ever going to be able to accomplish this. I just don't, you know, so I just, I have to kind of laugh and say, well, you never know. Over the years, I I imagine you've had some opportunities to meet some celebrities, some pretty famous people. Do you have any Funny stories about meeting anyone famous? When I had my charter service, I was fortunate enough to get to fly George Harrison, the Beatle. And the first time that I flew him and his wife and his little boy, Danny, Danny was, I believe, about three years old. And they introduced themselves, and he immediately said, Mummy girls can't fly and they clamped a hand over his mouth and they said oh oh well we're so sorry it was so funny but as i got to know them i ended up flying them for almost three years and as i got to know them over the years you know we talked about it and they they felt that he had flown quite a bit for his young age and he had just never seen any women pilots so he just made that assumption but i thought that was pretty cute what advice would you give to young women who dream of becoming a pilot I would encourage anybody who wants to become a pilot to absolutely follow their dream because I think once you get started, you will know if it's a passion, it will indeed present itself as a passion. And if it's a passion, I think you're always going to be good at what you do. I really do. I think it's an amazing job. It's a job where, for example, There's never any question that you will be paid exactly the same as anybody else. And you can excel at what you do and you can exude competence and confidence and know that you're very successful in what you set out to do. It's a wonderful feeling. Thank you so much for your time, Kiki. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was recently retired Hawaiian Airlines pilot Kiki Kohler reflecting on her 45-year career with HPR's Russell Subiono. Full disclosure, Hawaiian Airlines is an HPR underwriter. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. I drove a super- 
When the pandemic hit, Marin Morris was having a baby. It was an experience that came with a lot of emotion and a rekindling of her creativity that shaped her latest album, Humble Quest. Marin talks about that album and about how far she's come since her early days on the Texas country music circuit on the next World Cafe. Beginning this evening at 8. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. This month, members of the Kauawa Ohana gathered at, uh, for a two-day reunion in Kahalu. Family recalled a time that at one gathering drew thousands of people on Oahu's west side. The family has roots on all islands and um, uh, holds a reunion uh, every couple of years. It's believed to be the only Hawaiian Ohana that has formed a 501c3. It traces its line to Liho Liho and focuses on five descendants, five main branches. We hear first from Carmen Haugen, who was born on the island of Maui and who learned about the family tree at a reunion there. And so they all came to Maui to do it, and so that's when we found out about it. And every two years we get together to do a family reunion. So because of the pandemic, you know, we had to hold off the last one we had was on Kauai, and that was the first time they ever had a uh, get-together on Kauai. And so that was nice. And so how large is this Kawawa family? Uh, the first one, that the, not the first, but the second maybe, they had about 5,000 showed up, and it was held in Makaha. And uh, yeah, that was the most that we had, about, about 5,000. But usually you have about two to 300 people that would come, and they come from all over the islands. And so this idea of incorporating, you know, how did that get started and, and the whole uh, jump into genealogy? Well, this was all done with uh, our founders and uh, they decided that they were going to do this as a family because, you know, family always stick together. You have to have family to get help and stuff. So when they first found out about it and decided to do it, they uh, got it all together and uh, that's how they started with all of the uh, uh, what do you call the family reunions and everybody that found out about it decided that all because they all knew that they were part of the family because there's like five siblings and we all together and so that's how we have all the five siblings anybody from the five siblings get together for this reunion and so you have to register but you, oh, yeah. you, you've got lay you've got i think tote bags or something that i saw being given out this morning yeah we do we, we, we have to start putting we put all of those things together we even have a program uh we had a booklet and stuff that we put inside the bags with their name tags and the uh, orange is the color for the oahu people because we're hosting when maui have theirs they use the pink the big island would use red kawaii would be the purple so like the, uh, the colors of the islands, that's how we have distinguished the different uh, areas and stuff, yeah. And so is this the only family that does this <laughs> like this? I guess so. I don't think I've ever heard about it. I think I hear about mahi sometimes, but because of the pandemic, you know, you haven't had much uh, get-togethers. But before then, oh yeah, I'm sure there was a whole lot of other people was doing their own family uh, get-togethers and stuff, but probably not as big as ours. Yeah, so. And then you provide resources on going to places to find good records so that you can make sure that your information is correct, is accurate. Well, we try to do that and we try to be sure that everybody that is a part of the family update us all the time whenever they have newborns, you know, or you have deaths in the family and stuff, but they have to come to us to let us know. We can look in the paper for obituaries and stuff, but that still doesn't give us all of the information. So anybody would have to come and give us information so we can update all of the books. 
and that's how we do that. Do you have any advice for other Hawaiian families out there that want to be able to trace back their genealogy and keep the family together and keep them connected? What would that be? There are so many different technology now. You can go YouTube, you can go social media, uh, go through uh, OHA, you know, the newspaper and stuff, and put a whole lot of information in there and say that we're getting a gathering. And anybody that is a family or family of, please, we're going to be getting together call us because we want to be sure that you're all a part of it. But yeah, social media, YouTube, Facebook, they're all out there that you can probably try, uh, draw people in. And I know lots of folks maybe go to the state archives, right, to try and find out the family records, uh, that kind of thing, or, or if they're trying to track family, let's say down to Kalopapa or, or you know places like that. Yeah, what they do is a lot of going to the Mormon church. There's one, I think, in Kalihi, and then the one outside in uh, Laig and stuff. A lot of them do that, go to the, the Mormon church and, and get it. And we always have our genealogy group that will go out and be sure that everything is correct. So how long have you been coming to these reunions? Let me say forever. <laughs> I was at one time the uh, treasurer for umpteen years, and now I'm secretary, uh, vice president secretary for the current one. And then you have the books, and I understand this oh, yeah. year there's a new format on the books. We have the five different siblings. We, we did each book, each one individually, but we sell it as a, as a package. And so what we do is we buy the books, and then from each one you check it out and see if there's anything left out. Be sure that you start updating it with the people that are here. And Paula Jorgensen tells us the Ohana really got going on their research in the 1970s. She sits on the genealogy committee that helps to plan the event. And on this day, there are tote bags and T-shirts, even a tree with ornaments of family members and family food trucks with local cow cow, too. She shares that this year, the uh, Kawawa books are sporting a new format and are only available for purchase for those who register. Well, they incorporated in 1979, but... Not everybody does it, you know, so some records are better than others because, uh, you know, they have submitted information. Others are totally lost. You know, I think I'm in the family, but I'm not sure. And it's like, well, you got to do your homework, you know, and you go back through yourself, your parents and their parents and work your way back that way to find out who you're related to. And then you also need to update your information. You know, if you have kids who have kids, you got to send that into us so we can keep it up, so we know, you know how how um, how the family runs. Right. So, so tell us then about this this gathering this weekend. I mean, you've got an event today. You're focusing on genealogy. And we'll have, you know, some people. You can buy food. We'll have some entertainment. Some of the members will talk about genealogy because that's that's what we do. That's what we are. And so, um, like my sister to. I think it's tonight, later tonight, she'll talk about obituaries, you know, how because of doing the book, she found that, you know, some obituaries were just lovely. They just gave all the information and, um, you know, what they did and who they knew or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas some of them, by the time they die, there's nobody left in the family. You know, it's just a little thing saying, oh, so-and-so died this date, you know. And um, so she's going to try and talk about that. But there's another gal that's up earlier, and she'll talk about genealogy itself. It's, you know, how, how it's done and where you would go to look for it and um, that kind of thing. And one Kapuna we met, her name is Lovey Nabalta. She joked about how she initially pushed back on this genealogy hobby that her mother was addicted to. It goes back to when my mom was told that uh, Auntie Cecilia was looking for a Hawaiian family that the lady had married a Haole. And it happened to my mom and her family, happened to be my mom and her family. And so that's how we got started with the Ohana. And she passed away, you know, after she was quite active. And I always told her, Mom, you know, when you pass, I'm not going to do your ohana stuff. <laughs> and what what happens? Hook, line, and sinker. I'm in it, you know. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty much committed to the kauawa ohana. And um, as far as 
how far back it goes. I'm still learning, you know, and um, very interesting. But, you know, it, it, once you get into ancestry, it can take over your life. <laughs> so, it gets under your skin. Yeah, and then you, you find more interest, you know. I said, well, how is this family related to us, you know? Oh, I went to school with this person, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, and it starts to expand quite a bit. So what is it that I guess amazes you as you come to these uh, get-togethers and the, the, the reunions every year? Well, we find new family members, you know, and like I said, some of them we were friends for how long or even um, classmates, you know, and then you find out, oh, you really are related, you know. So, yeah, and, you know, you, you, it allows you to expand your horizons as far as learning goes, you know, because there's a whole bunch of things you can learn just from ancestry. So where's your family from? This side of the island? Yes. Um, actually, my my mother and um, her sisters were born here in Honolulu, and but her mother was born in Maui, and um, her father was from Maui as well. So, you know, it's like, oh wow, I didn't know we had family on Maui. You know, I just knew that my father's side came from Maui, but whether my mother's side, you know, and so yeah, it went way back. Is there any one thing that maybe has surprised you that you've learned over the years? Any one particular factoid about the Kababa family or, I don't know, good or bad? Yeah, well, for one thing, um, we didn't know how far back they went, you know, and we're still finding more and more information as far as how really far back. You know, they all say, don't Hanaino royalty, you know. <laughs> And then you say, nah, <laughs> but it's coming to that point where, yeah, you may be related somewhere, you know, to royalty. Well, I heard Liho Liho. Yeah, you know, so it's like, oh, really? <laughs> so it gets to be quite interesting because, you know, you just joke, you know, about don't handle in no royalty. <laughs> and then for real, you are, you know. <laughs> We have been hearing from members of the Kauawa Ohana, an extended Native Hawaiian family interested in encouraging its members to learn about best practices in researching genealogy. That's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we continue to hear from lieutenant governor and governor candidates. What do you think of the campaign ads on television and social media that you've been seeing lately? Call us, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song helped to produce our show. Our summer intern is Emily Tom. Backyard Quiz theme was written by John DeMello, and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday for the conversation. Thank you.